Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching the Bible through cover to cover Genesis to Revelation in one year. And we are doing that so that we know God. Now, today we come to a very important part of Scripture in the history of Israel. It's a defining moment. It's really one event with two parts. The event is the Passover and the Exodus. It's, that's a sequence of events, and today we're going to look at both. Both are very important, as you'll see, and one of the things I hope to show you today is that you cannot understand the whole story of Scripture without understanding the Passover and the Exodus. Uh, they are everywhere in the Bible. These are defining moments for God's people, Israel, and they uh, are alluded to again and again and again through the rest of Scripture. So we'll see how prevalent these events are. But I also want to let you know that I believe these events are a frame not only to understand the story of Scripture, but a frame to understand reality. What I mean by that is this. We cannot really understand who God is without understanding the Passover. We cannot really understand who we are as God's people without understanding the Exodus. So that's where we're going today. Are you ready? Let's dive into the story. Let's understand reality today. We left off last week talking about the plagues of Egypt. Remember that the word plagues is not used in the Bible. It's actually the word signs. And what God is doing is showing signs to say that he is the true God, the I am, the almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. There's no one else like him, no other God like him. And we left off in the dark. The darkness was the ninth plague, and now we come to the last sign, the death of the firstborn. You'll remember that these signs were kind of in response to a question that Pharaoh asked. When Moses went to Pharaoh in Exodus 5 and says, let my people go, after 400 years of slavery, I hear their cries, it's time, let them go. You remember Pharaoh's response was, Who's the Lord that I should obey him? And these signs are to answer that question of Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And as we start today, I just want to acknowledge that that's a really good question. In fact, some of you are here this morning as a response to that question. Some of you want to know who God is what this Christianity thing is all about. Is he just one God among many? What's unique about the Christian God? You are welcome here if you are a skeptic. You are welcome here if you are a seeker. You are welcome here if you've got questions. You are welcome here if you're asking the question, who is the Lord that I should obey him. And one thing I want you to know, after most every service, and we'll do it today, at the end of the service, as everyone's making their way out, we have people, staff, elders, Stephen ministers, that'll be down here in the front, and one of the things they're prepared to do is answer questions. Not that we all have the answers, but we 
we know that questions are important, and we want to hear those questions. We can point you in directions of people to talk to, resources to check out. And so if you have questions today and you want to talk to someone, come down after the service. We would love to hear your questions. Everyone is welcome here, especially your questions. Who is the Lord that we should obey him? The Lord gives the signs. The last sign is the death of the firstborn. Now, what you need to know is that this all starts to transpire in Exodus 11. God tells Moses what is going to happen with the death of the firstborn. In Exodus 12, Moses is prepared to go and tell Pharaoh about this last sign. But what's interesting is so far, this pace has been really a marching pace, one plague after the other after the other. But now Moses, and I think Moses is the narrator telling and describing these events, Moses kind of comes to a, a place where he needs to narrate a little bit and give some editorial comment about what's going on. And what's interesting is he says at the beginning of chapter 12, Israel, let's take a time out. What you need to know is that this last sign, the Passover, is going to totally define who you are as a people. In fact... From now on, the Passover will be your first national holiday. In fact, we are going to create a new calendar, a new way of keeping time, and every Jewish year will begin with the celebration of the Passover. Do you get this sense? God is now defining them as a people, and he's saying that every year you need to remember. Remember the blood of the Lamb? Remember the unleavened bread? Remember the bitter herbs? Remember the cup of wine, the four cups? Remember that you eat it in haste, your robe tucked into your belt, watching for what God's going to do. Every year starts that way. This is who you are. With that editorial comment and the people defined by God, the event transpires, and we read it. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood. Hyssop is like a plant with a fluffy end, so you could use it like a brush. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on top, the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer. We think this destroyer is one of God's angels sent to do this work of justice. Permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down, and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. <coughs> so 
excuse me, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. What's happening here? What's happening here is Revelation 18 come a few thousand years early. What's happening here is God who at the end of time, and this is described in Revelation 18, he will call every nation to account for the ways they have worked with the grain of the moral composition of reality. Except with Egypt, for this particular sign in this particular time and place for the establishment of Israel as a people, God brings judgment early on Egypt. Why? Because they are resisting the moral composition of God's universe. How? They are throwing babies into the Nile River. Genocide. They are suppressing immigrants in their land, forcing them into slavery, not giving them human rights. And it's time for them to answer for the ways they have treated God's universe and his people made in God's image. It's the final judgment. The day of the Lord come early on this superpower in world history. And the only escape for anyone living in Egypt the blood, a bloody death of a helpless victim stands at the center of the story of God's people. Still doesn't make it easy though, does it? Every house had either a dead lamb or a dead son. What are we supposed to do with that? I can give you my two explanations, but it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember last week we talked about each of the plagues had a target. God wasn't just like saying, beg for mercy. He was after something very strategic. He was out to humiliate the Egyptian gods and their whole theology system. He was to bring judgment upon this nation and their belief system. And so every god or every plague is directed towards an Egyptian god. This is true of the plague of the firstborn. There was a favorite god in Israel. His name was Osiris. Osiris was the gatekeeper to the afterlife. And um, he sat there 
between the living and the dead. And once you died, you'd go to your place in the afterlife. And the Egyptians write much about this and had quite a unique belief system and structure for the afterlife. But at the very gate, deciding where you were in the afterlife is this god, Osiris. And Osiris watched your descendants and your ancestors. And he made sure, as best he could, that they were living good lives. And the better lives that your ancestors or your descendants lived the more you had a better place in the afterlife. And so Osiris was prayed to, he was pleaded to, it was thought in the afterlife to encourage descendants to live better lives. And if they lived good lives, you would do better in the afterlife. Well, what do you think the sign of the firstborn said to that belief system? Uh Uh-uh. You do not get to relationship with God and live in his presence through human good works. And he's tearing that Egyptian theological belief down. This is a plague specifically pointed to a belief system. Intellectually, okay, I can understand that. That's still rough. Every house with deadness in it. There's a second thing that we have to understand, and that's what the firstborn means. Why the firstborn? Why is it just the the firstborn son that dies? Well, you need to understand in the ancient world the belief system around the firstborn. You see, in the ancient world, if you had four kids, your estate when you died as a father, it was not divided equally among your four children. All of your estate went to the firstborn. Why? Because in the ancient world, in agricultural society, you had to keep your lands together. You had to consolidate all your resources in order for the family to continue to be prosper. And so the firstborn was the one assigned to inherit everything from the father and manage the house. But the firstborn represented the entire family. And so the firstborn, I mean, everything sat on the shoulders of the firstborn son. And he represented the entire household. So, Two things are said by this plague on the firstborn. First, in taking out the firstborn, what God is saying that everyone owes God a debt of justice because the firstborn represents everybody. Every person in Egypt owes a debt of justice to God and is ultimately accountable to him. And God is calling Egypt to be accountable, to face judgment, to be evaluated. But the second thing that you need to understand about the firstborn is, and this is really important, God had every right to wipe out every person in Egypt. Every single person. He made them, they turned their back on him, were living in a very corrupt and fallen society, and God could have wiped them all out. But he didn't. He only took the firstborn. Do you see the fractional mercy of God? In play. The firstborn represents all. By taking out the firstborn, he called everyone in Egypt to account that they owe God a a weight of justice. But in taking the firstborn, he's merciful when he could have taken every person, rightly, justly, in Egypt. And still, the way out was through the blood, the bloody death of a helpless victim. Now, I want to show you just briefly how this has shaped the whole story. 
this bloody death of a helpless victim, this God intervening to provide the covering that would take away human sins. It's at the very beginning of the story where God shows us that he covers. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve, our parents made their decision to go our own way, and we, uh, in them and through them, through all the generations since, have turned and gone our own way. But God was even then working to restore relationship. And notice, remember Adam and Eve, they felt shame, they hid from God, they sewed fig leaves together. And then we read this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God comes to Adam and Eve and says, I see your shame, I see your guilt, I will cover you and move towards relationship. We see it at the very beginning. We see it at the middle. When the Passover is celebrated by Jesus on the last night he was with us in person, the disciples gathered in the upper room. There were two huge shocks for the disciples that night. Like unbelievable, blew their minds. The first was this, when Jesus lifted up the bread in the typical Exodus liturgy, it would have gone something like this. This is the bread of our affliction. And by the affliction of our forefathers, we go free. But that's not what Jesus said. He, he who was the facilitator of the Passover, what did he say? This bread is my body, which is broken for you. The disciples would have gone, What? What Jesus was saying was, by my suffering, you will be liberated. That's the first shock. The second shock, where's the lamb? There's no lamb. There's no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. Jesus is the lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is me. Shocking. We go to the very end of the story, the end of history. John uh, writes a vision that he, God gave him and he sees this, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The scroll is the idea of being to, to finish history, to make everything play out. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb. Bloody death of a helpless victim. Looking as if it had been slain, throat cut. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All that to say is, the bloody death of a helpless victim is now ruling history. That is such a paradox, is it not? Because we believe those who rule history rule with power. And God says no. The kingdom of God is ruled in weakness. And we believe that the world is ruled by violence and submission. 
No. The kingdom of God is ruled by self-sacrificing death. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover defines who God is. God is the God who loves so much that he comes down, sends his son to become an atoning sacrifice for our sins in our place. That is the massive, massive understanding of who the Christian God is, a self-sacrificing, covering God who takes away our sins. To help us understand just how central that is to our faith and how it plays into even the Christian church, I want you to watch a video by the Bible Project called Sacrifice and Atonement. Take a look. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Yeah, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but... 
It wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people, and his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this was the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Six seconds was how long that girl was under the water, just in case you were wondering. Makes me think all these years we just have not been doing it right. We need to our next baptism is the first weekend in March. If any of you would like to proclaim your faith, if you've never been baptized as a believer and want to tell the world, our church, and your family that you have crossed from death to life, that you have uh, a sinner who's now a forgiven sinner, and proclaim that to the world and promise the rest of your life to him, you can be baptized. Just talk to us after the service. Stop at the info barrel out in the, the hub, and uh, we'd love to baptize you. You see, the Passover tells us 
who God is, that we have an atoning God who loves us so much that he came to cover our sins and forgive us and restore relationship. The Exodus tells us who we are. So you remember that um, after the grief and the shock of that final sign began to wear off to the Egyptians, Pharaoh, it says, kind of came to his senses and he asked, what have we done? And then he says in this classic statement, we have lost the services of Israel. What a nice way to say is we've lost our workforce and the economy's tanked. And we need to get them back. And so Pharaoh and the army takes off after Israel. And we pick up the story in Exodus 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, <laughs> I just have to, I mean, just like probably... Hours ago, they had just seen God totally devastate the strongest superpower in the history of the world at that time. Now notice what they're saying. <laughs> Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? No, they never said that. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What short-term memory we have. Moses stands and he's a leader. And he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. Now, you need to understand, the English makes this a very nice translation of the Hebrew. It would be better translated, shut up. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to shut up. The text says that Moses lifted his hand. With Egypt in the rearview mirror, the Red Sea parted, walls of water dry ground, the, Egypt, the Israelites walk through, every one of them. As they get to the other side, the walls collapse, come back down. The, Isra the Egyptian army swallowed up and drowned. The end of Egypt as a superpower. It's interesting to see this played out in Scripture. Remember we said both these events are how Scripture is framed. There's 24 references to the Exodus in the Old Testament. There's almost as many in the New Testament, just a brief sampling. We see it uh, with Matthew when Jesus is born. And remember, Herod was trying to find Jesus. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt. And then we read this. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the prophet had said, Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. When Hosea prophesied it, when he said son, he meant Israel. Now we see Jesus, it's, when he says son, it's Jesus, which means Jesus is fully identifying with Israel, God's people, to lead them from death to life. We see it in Luke. We mentioned this last week. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his glory is revealed. 
Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure. And that word departure is literally the word exodus. That Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and on the cross receive the signs, the plagues of God's judgment on himself. The firstborn son dying in the dark to cover our sins. Jesus will lead from death to life. We see it in John. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has what? Crossed over. Exodus. From death to to life. And finally, in 1 Corinthians, this very interesting passage, Paul's writing in a letter to a church in Greece, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. There it is. They were all baptized into, into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. That accompanied them. That rock was Christ. Jesus, the one who leads from death to life, from sinner to forgiven sinner. Jesus is our exodus. What does it mean? Well, it means this. That What it means is this. That Here's what salvation means. Here's what it means to be saved. It means two things. First, to be released from bondage. It's interesting. When Israel... When it happens, they are objectively free, right? They're out of Egypt. They're, you know, they're at the, the edge of the Red Sea, but objectively they are free people. But what happens when they hear hoofbeats? What happens when they sense Egypt is after them? Their heart immediately goes back into bondage, back into slavery. Oh, no, what are we going to do? Oh, no. We, they try to take things into their own hands. They complain. They're, they're living in bondage. Every person in their human heart struggles with bondage. How? Well, first, we struggle with addiction to sin. We are always in our hearts trying to take short-term pleasure, get short-term gain from choices, and sometimes those choices are very wrong, very bad. They disobey God. They hurt ourselves. We, we, we get addicted to it. Why? Because the law of sin is diminishing returns. The more you sin and the more you choose sin, the easier it becomes to keep choosing sin, and you need more and more sin because the more you get, the more you need. We're addicted in our hearts, inside, to sin. Uh, Leslie Jameson, who writes on addiction, she put it this way, addiction is always a story that has already been told because it inevitably repeats itself, because it grinds down ultimately for everyone to use the same demolished and reductive and recycled core. Here is sin. Desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. Repeat. That's what's going on in the inside. So we turn to things on the outside, what the Bible calls idols, things that are good things usually, things that often God made, like family, like work, like sex, good things. But we take them and we say, oh, you will fill my hungry heart. Oh, you will give my life meaning and significance. You know, it's like, the, remember the Rocky movies? Uh, half of you in the room don't. It, it, they were really good movies about a boxer in Philadelphia. And uh, I've ran the stairs. And uh, Rocky says, yo, Adrian, I, I just need to go the distance. And then I won't feel like a bum. We spend so much of our lives resisting the approaching bumness. Or 
I couldn't put it any better than one of my favorite theologians who put it in a song, and he won the Nobel Prize, by the way. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We are always trying to put something at the center of our affections, in the deep spots of our heart, that will give us meaning and fill the emptiness. What's going on inside is we're addicted to sin, getting short-term pleasures. Outside, we turn to idols we think will give that to us. That's the bondage in which we live. You know, it works in, in crazy ways, right? We've experienced it. Uh, I've experienced it as a parent. You know, I would lay down my life for my two sons. And uh, growing up, I think I did most times the best I could. But I remember wrestling with that dark spot. And some of you parents, you, you'll wrestle with this me. There was a piece of that where I just wanted them to flourish, and I gave everything I could to that. There was another piece to that where I wanted you to think that I was one of the best parents who ever lived. And then when my kids, when one of my sons or both my sons would hit rough patches, it was crushing. Not only because I knew they were hurting themselves, but if I'm honest, I also knew that you would think less of me for what, the way my son was living. It gets all mixed up, does it not? In this bondage that has captured my heart. It's true at work, right? At work. A good thing, a God-given thing. We're made to work, but sometimes at work, when we put it at the center of our affections and we say to work, make me significant, what happens? Well, when we're at work and there's someone on our team that's not pulling their weight, what's our response? Get them out. What's our response when someone else gets the promotion? What's our response when someone else gets the glory? What's our response when someone else at work? <laughs> In our head, we know they're doing a better job than us. What's our response? Anger. Anger. Why? It's our heart. We're in bondage. What's it mean to be saved? It first means to come clean about that bondage, that we're a sinner. But it doesn't stop there because it also means, secondly, to be saved, that we are saved by a decisive act of rescue. We're released from the bondage. That decisive act, when, when Pharaoh was chasing down Israel and they came to the Edge Sea and, and they walked into that Red Sea, Pharaoh had pronounced the death sentence on them, right? But it's God who said, stand still and watch. I will fight for you. A decisive act of rescue. And when they came out the other side, they were saved. What it means to be saved is that you've been released from bondage by a decisive act. And that decisive act is one act with two parts. The first part is Jesus dying on the cross. And by that act, he saves us from sin. It's why Paul the apostle, who killed people, who was, in his own words, the chief of sinners, but why he could say in Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation 
for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has died for my sins. He's brought me from sin to forgiven sinner, from life to death. I've death to life. You see, decisive act of rescue. And part two of that is the resurrection. That Jesus walked out of his own grave by his own power to release us from sin. So, from death. So neither sin can separate us and death can't separate us from God because Jesus died and rose again. You know, for 20 years I've been preaching this illustration. I'll never, I had to preach once after Easter and it was just after a, a man died. His name was Larry Laprisa. And uh, he wrote the song that you probably sang as a child, the Hokey Pokey. And I read about his funeral. And uh, they put his left foot in, and things just got crazy after that. That's what it's all about. You die, you live. Because Jesus has rescued us. And we do the hokey pokey on our grave. That's what it means to be saved. We've crossed over. We've gone from a family to God's family. We've gone from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. We've gone from being born to being born again. We've crossed over by a decisive act of rescue. Stand still and see that God has fought for you. What does that mean when that sits into the depth of our soul? It, it changes the kind of person we become. If you remember Passover and Exodus, it makes you a grace-soaked person. You never look at people the same way. Brief story, uh, it's, it's uh, told uh, there was uh, an actress named Lena Dunham, who's a writer and well-known in Hollywood, and she does not yet know Jesus, but she was having a conversation with a Christian poet by the name of Mary Carr, and, and Dunham is fascinated by Carr's faith and her association with this guy, Jesus. So Lena Dunham asked Mary Carr, what's it like to be a person who thinks and cares about Jesus and has religion in your life but hangs out with the New York literati? Mary Carr proceeds to tell Lena Dunham this simple story about church. I had this amazing thing happen to me in Mass a couple of weeks ago. A guy came up to me. I had my iPad, and there's a thing that lets you follow the readings, the church readings. I'm looking at that. I'm not reading my email. I'm not looking at anything else on the Internet. This guy comes up to me from the back of the church, dressed up in a coat and tie like uncle assistant principal or something. He says, could you please turn that off? I said, excuse me? He said, the light is bothering me. I thought for a minute, I'm trying to be a Christian. And I said, okay, sure, yeah, I can, no problem. And then I sat there and wished him dead during the entire Mass. <laughs> then when I was walking out of the church, he came up to me and said, I'm so sorry. I know there's something wrong with me. He did not, Dunham retorts. He did, Carr assures her. And she reflects on the experience. I was so glad that I had turned it off. I got to help him feel a little better or whatever, feel like he had some agency in the world. What did that cost me? Do you know what I mean? For me, a lot of times I walk into mass, I look at people, I think these are not my people, 
Invariably, by the end of the Mass, I walk out and people look different to me. You see, when you know that Jesus has fought for you and covered your sins and gave you new life, it gives you a lens of grace and you look at every person differently. Every person. Because you know what's been done in you. Second thing it does is it makes you a salvation-steadied person. Let me just come directly as we begin to prepare for the table of the Lord and just ask you kind of a hard question. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If your answer is something like, I hope so. If your answer is something like, well, I'm sure trying. You're probably not quite there yet. Do you know why? Because a Christian is someone who has crossed over from sinner to forgiven sinner, from death to life, and they know they've crossed over. They know that there's nothing more they can do. They know that it's the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of their life that saved them. They know that it's the cross. Christianity is not spelled D-O-do, it's spelled D-O-N-E, done. And that's what a Christian is, is someone who stops trying and says, I can't save myself, but trust in the blood of the Lamb. And it's because of what he's done. And You know, I I like to picture this, those Israelites walking down into the, the sand in the middle of the Red Sea. I'm sure there was at least two kinds of attitudes there. The first attitude was, yeah, Egypt, take that. God is fighting for us. And I'm sure there was another group of people saying, oh, my God, I'm going to die. There's a fish. I'm going to die. (laughs) And you know what? They all came through. It does not matter how strong or weak is your faith. What matters is how strong he is, the one fighting for you. So as we come to the table of the Lord now, this table is the Passover table. And it's a time when we remember that we need to stand still and we need to see who is fighting for us. We need to bring everything in our lives through that table. We need to bring our work through that table and understand it's not our work that's our security. Jesus is my security. And we need to bring our family through that table and say, it's not my family that will be my ultimate peace. It's Jesus that will be my ultimate peace. And we need to bring our hungry heart through that table and say, there's nothing I can do to satisfy my hungry heart. Only Jesus can be the joy of my heart. So as you come to the table, tear off that piece of bread and hear Jesus say, this is the bread of my suffering broken for you as often as you eat it remember me and as you drink that cup hear Jesus saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood you are forgiven because of what I've done for you take this time stand still see that God has fought for you and rest in his salvation so in your time leave your seats take this time with Jesus and praise him for Passover